Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. How many of you, by the way, a show of hands, get our, either our, our newsletter and or emails, texts, or announcements? Okay, so a lot of you don't, it sounds like. But uh, there's been a number of... Uh, sicknesses and, and injuries uh, in, in, our, in our community. So I ask you to keep them in, in, in prayer. Uh, Margaret Klein, uh, Debbie Hardgrave, Art Niedrauer, please keep them in prayer. We thank you that uh, Vola Smith is back from the hospital from her successful heart surgery, but continue to keep her in prayer as well. Uh, and if you aren't getting our, our, our announcements, please go to our website and, and sign up for that at ecdallas.org and you can sign up to, to get our newsletter. Hallelujah. Well, Shabbat Shalom. We're in a series on the book of Daniel, uh, save for Daniel. Today we're looking at chapter 5 of, of the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is an eyewitness account of the fall of the Babylonian Empire. In chapter 5, it's the eyewitness account of the fall of the Babylonian Empire to the, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, and it's also an eyewitness account in this chapter 5 uh, to the moral degradation which caused the fall which is the real lesson and warning for us today uh, in our own nation, even as Trey uh, prayed earlier. Uh, the doom of a nation is spelled when it forgets or rejects God. And the muddy Babylonian empire fell in one night. The parallels to America today are frightening. We need to pray for revival and to prepare for persecution. Because the barbarians are at the gate, as we're seeing already with the violent, frenzied attacks on pro-life clinics and pregnancy centers, whose only crime is to love and support mothers who want to give birth to their babies. The days of American cultural and political institutions steeped in Judeo-Christian values, those days are over. America is not the country it once was. We live in a post-Judeo-Christian, post-biblical society. Biblical values, far from being embraced by the cultural elites, uh, are now the enemy of these elites. And if you speak to anyone who has emigrated here from Eastern Europe or the former Soviet Union back when it was still communist, they will tell you this. They say, we're seeing things in America today that remind us of our days living under communism in Eastern Europe or the former Soviet Union. They speak of a growing intolerance of the left against anything that conflicts with their woke ideology. Uh, just last month, uh, the government tried to start a so-called disinformation board, a ministry of truth, to censor opposing thoughts. But they really don't need to do this because social media uh, and mainstream news networks and newspapers and academia and entertainment and even sports uh, and TV talk shows and, and big corporations are already doing it for them. And if you don't conform, you can lose your job, your reputation, even your freedom. So it's quietly happening here under the radar. Uh, this growing soft form of totalitarianism right before our eyes. 
but most of us are unaware or are in denial. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says this about what's happening, and put this on the overhead. He, he writes, there's always this fallacious belief, it won't be the same here. Such things are surely impossible, but alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. And the new form of, of leftist, woke, American totalitarianism doesn't only want your obedience, it wants your soul. So with this application to modern day America, let's turn to Daniel chapter five and the fall of Babylon. When the chapter opens, Nebuchadnezzar has been already dead for many years. Uh, his grandson, uh, Belshazzar, is on the throne. Daniel paints his decadent character with just a few deft strokes. We're told he's throwing a party for a thousand of his nobles, this huge blowout. And in the first four verses, one verb gets repeated five times. See if you can spot this verb in Daniel, 1, Daniel 5, 1 to 4. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and, his, and their concubine, his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What's the verb that keeps getting repeated? It's the verb to drink, yes. <laughs> That's what was going on in this wild party. And there were women there, which was actually a bit unusual for these ancient royal banquets. And you'll notice they're all women from his harem, uh, his wives and concubines. They'd be there for one purpose. Belshazzar is giving free reign to any appetite he wants to indulge. He encourages all the nobles around him to do the same. That's where the royal treasury is going. Government spending at its best. <laughs> this is where all the money is going to in Babylon. And now Belshazzar has an idea, let's spice up the party. He remembers the goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had looted from the temple many years ago. They were, of course, sacred objects. They had never been used for anything but the worship of the one true God of Israel. But this new king, Belshazzar, decided to take these sacred vessels that were an expression of devotion and holiness for Jews and to use them for an orgy, to mock God. He's going to flaunt his rulership over Israel uh, and show his superiority over the God of Israel by using these sacred temple treasures in an act of defiance and blasphemy, desecration and disdain. Daniel 5, verse 5, next slide. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face grew pale. He was so frightened that his joints went slack and his knees began knocking together and his legs gave way. By the way, the English translation here is being a bit delicate. <laughs> This reminds me of the, of the story of Lord Nelson, uh, the Admiral of the British Navy. 
Lord Nelson was in his cabin in his warship, and the cabin boy ran in and said, Lord Nelson, there's a Spanish galleon on the starboard bow. He said, fine, sound, general quarters. Got me my red waistcoat. So he puts on his red waistcoat, goes on deck, engages the Spanish galleon, and sinks it. About a week later, again, Lord Nelson's in his cabin, uh, and again, his cabin boy comes running in, shouting, Lord Nelson, there's two Spanish galleons on the port quarter. Fine, sound general quarters, got me my red waistcoat. He puts on the red waistcoat, engages the enemy, and sinks both Spanish galleons. The cabin boy says, Lord Nelson, I noticed every time that we go into battle, you always wear your red waistcoat. Why? That's a good question, son. You see, if during the battle I should sustain a hit, I don't want the crew to see the blood and be demoralized or, or frightened, so I wear my red waistcoat to mask any such occurrence. The next week, the cabin boy comes running in, Lord Nelson, the entire Spanish armada is on the horizon. He says, sound general quarters and get me my brown britches. <laughs> He's gonna have to mask something else. <laughs> Which brings us to Daniel 5, verse 6. The king's countenance was changed. Yeah, I can imagine this. He says, the fingers of this hand appeared and began writing on the wall. Look at Daniel 5, verse 6, the next slide, the full verse. The king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints, this is beautiful old King James, I love it. So that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against the other. I can't, I can't imagine improving on this quaint King James translation. <laughs> The joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against the other. You may not realize what's happening here with this very quaint language, but the Lord Nelson's story might give you a hint. <laughs> Verse 7, next slide. The king called out for his enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be clothed in purple have a gold chain put around his neck, and be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face grew paler. His nobles were baffled. Uh, the queen, meaning here the queen mother, uh, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. Oh, king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Uh, don't don't uh, look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who was the spirit of the holy God in him. In the time of your father, and the Hebrew, by the way, here also means grandfather, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he'll tell you what the writing means. Excuse me. All right. So Daniel was brought before the king and said to him, and the king said, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain put around your neck, and you'll be made third highest ruler in all the kingdom." Belshazzar's throwing this party, here's the scene, and out of nowhere, the fingers of a human hand suddenly appear. 
and begin to write on the wall. By the way, this is where we get our famous phrase, the handwriting's on the wall. Belshazzar's probably wondering if maybe he's had a bit too, ca bit too much Cabernet. <laughs> maybe he should switch to coffee. But then he sees that the words, are, the words are real and he's terrified. He cannot understand the message. This frightens him even more. Uh, nobody can help him. But the queen, uh, the queen mother remembers this old advisor of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so Belshazzar sends some men, they, they, they track him down, they get him out of bed in the middle of the night, and Daniel is brought into the center of the room. You need to understand the drama of this moment. At the beginning of the book of Daniel, Daniel was just a teenager in, in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now, about chapter five, over 60 years have gone by. Daniel's now an old man. Uh, he moves slowly, his hair is uh, white or gray, uh, he's in his 80s. At one time, he was the right-hand man of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth. But now he, he's been so discarded that the king doesn't even know him, the new king. Not because Daniel has lost his ability, but because this king is a joke. He doesn't want to hear the truth about himself or about God. And one glance tells Daniel what's going on in this room. That this king, who's charged by God to serve his people, is serving only himself. And then Daniel sees the golden temple goblets. He hadn't seen those since he was a boy back in Israel. He remembers what it was like to worship in the temple in the Bethlehem. He remembers those vessels, those golden goblets, to be used exclusively for the worship of God. And he sees now what they're being used for. And this king, who's forgotten Daniel, who's blasphemed Daniel's God, and, and sees this handwriting on the wall, this king now asks Daniel for help. Tell me what it means, he says. He tells Daniel he'll give him all these presents, which, by the way, may imply that Belshazzar uh, will pay Daniel to tell him what he wants to hear. But Daniel makes it very clear he is not playing this game. He wants Belshazzar to know, you cannot buy your way out of this one. This is just this, the magnificent courage of Daniel. Look at Daniel 5, verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to somebody else. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Once again, we see Daniel's holy boldness in these amazing, powerful words. Daniel is a man of faith. He's seen God at work time and again throughout his life. Daniel was a man who spoke full, boldly forth the truth, God's truth, no matter who, who, who was listening and what the effect would be. Uh, and in fact, Daniel told the king, you can't give me anything because you're finished. Whatever you have to give me is meaningless. Belshazzar could give Daniel nothing. He had nothing to give. His kingdom was ending that very night. You know, in the same way when, when Satan tempts us with the pleasures of this world, our response should be like Daniel. You can't give me anything. The enemy, enemy Satan, you have nothing to give. You are a defeated foe. Whatever you offer is empty and meaningless. Satan's gifts, yes, they seem enticing at the moment, but they prove empty and hollow. Verse 18. O king, most, o king, 
uh, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. We saw this last time in Daniel 4. He, he was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys, ate grass like the cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Daniel tries to remind Belshazzar about the example and the lesson from his father, or more accurately his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. But Belshazzar won't learn from these lessons. He ignores and scorns them. He refused to heed God's revelation. He had heard about the one true God uh, from his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, but he turned his back on it. Daniel 5, verse 22. But you, O son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets of his temple brought to you, uh, and, and you and your nobles and wives and concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see, hear, or understand. And you did not honor God, who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Notice that Daniel tells Belshazzar how his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had been lifted up in his pride, and, be, and, and how because of his sin of arrogance and pride, God brought judgment upon him. Daniel rehearses the account of Nebuchadnezzar's position of world leadership and his pride and his judgment and then his final recognition of the sovereignty of God. And Daniel then concludes his testimony with these awesome words of condemnation. Look at Daniel 5.22. But you, O Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself though you knew all this. Belshazzar knew the history of his grandfather. He could not plead innocence or ignorance. His sin was deliberate. He therefore been held responsible and accountable for his actions. His sin would not go unpunished. And this is one of the most frightening phrases in all of scripture. Daniel says to Belshazzar, you knew. It's bad enough, Belshazzar, that you did such, such stupid and wicked things, but what makes it worse, much worse, is you knew better. God had given you a front row seat of all that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You, know that you knew Nebuchadnezzar had been given what he had from God, and you knew the penalty for pride and arrogance. You knew who God was. You knew what God wanted, and yet you chose death. You knew. Now, friends, there's a very deep human dynamic at work here, and it's this. We avoid responsibility for knowing the truth because we want to do what we want to do. I remember last year, I'm driving to school. I'm late. Uh, I'm on the tollway trying to make up for lost time. I look in the rearview mirror, I see this flashing blue light. And by the way, it's not the Kmart special. <laughs> The officer, he pulls me over and he asks the favorite question of any police officer, do you know why I pulled you over? <laughs> so I said, no idea. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> then he asked his second favorite question. He says, 
did you know the speed limit on the towway here is 65? I said, I had no idea. I'm sure it was posted on the signs, officer, but those signs are going by way too fast for me to read them. <laughs> I didn't know the speed limit. Now, here's what he did not say. He didn't say, oh, you didn't know. Well, okay then. You know, I thought you knew this, what the speed limit was, and you sped anyways, and that would be a problem. But in light of this new information that you didn't know, you're free to go. He didn't say that. <laughs> even though I didn't know, even though I was only going a relatively few miles over the speed limit, justice came my way that day. Now, the truth is, I should have known the speed limit, even if I didn't see the sign, because it was going by so fast. <laughs> the truth is, I didn't want to know. And I tell you, friends, when Judgment Day comes, to have adopted the strategy of saying, I'm going to close my eyes and avoid looking at the signs and claim ignorance, it's not going to work. Belshazzar didn't want to know, so he closed his eyes. He didn't want to look at the signs. He pretended that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar had nothing to do with him. So he threw another party, drank some more wine, blew some more of the government money to keep his mind off things. But deep inside, deep down, he knew. He knew. This is one of the great dangers of, of spiritual life. Uh, I call it strategic avoidance. We avoid thinking about or reading about or talking about or dwelling on or looking at that which might convict us, cause us pain, uh, call us to change. Uh, what's staggering about this you know, is, is that I know what's right. I know that God is the judge. I know that Messiah died for my sins and he caused me to live a life of holiness dedicated to him. I know the pain that my sin causes him and other people and all the people God in this world God loves so much. And yet, I still sin. So I, I want to be very personal for a moment. Is there any area of your life where you know but you're closing your eyes? Maybe you're a mom or dad. You've been making work uh, into an idol. And your children are shriveling up inside. Uh, you lose them a little bit more each day. But by keeping real busy and avoiding reflection uh, and steering clear of people who might speak the truth to you, you can avoid thinking about that reality. You're ignoring and choosing not to see the signs. But deep down, you know. Or maybe you're the one who, type who lets his anger fly. And your words, they, they, they draw blood. Uh, they drip with, scar with sarcasm or contempt. Uh, you have no patience or self-control. You snap back, you, you lash out at the littlest thing that upsets you, that doesn't go your way. Uh, there's yelling and screaming and anger and hurtful words and accusations. There is no shalom by it. There's no peace in your home. And you just avoid looking at the hurt in the eyes of your children and your spouse and your friends and your coworkers because you don't want to know. You pretend that, you know, that all your relationships are just fine. But deep down, you know. And this call to humility for both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar specifically involves as well a third element, that of doing justice and helping the poor and the oppressed 
the widows, the orphans, the single moms. Now, by the way, this has nothing to do with politics or government programs. This is about believers helping one another, helping others. Today, our world, by the way, is so designed that those resources don't have to see or think about the poor. Our world is set up so you can live and work and go to school and drive to the gym and socialize and shop in comfortable surroundings, out of view of the underprivileged and the lower classes. We've arranged our society so we can pretend that everybody lives like us, but they don't. We have tremendous needs right here at Eskayim. Each year we have to turn down many mercy fund requests due to lack of funds. Around the world, religious, uh, around the world relief organizations estimate that up to 40,000 children starve to death every day. These are real people with eternal souls, people created in God's image. Somebody with a mom and a dad. Somebody with hopes and dreams for tomorrow. But for up to 40,000 a day, tomorrow never comes. We see the slaughter of the innocents in Ukraine. We see believers, our brothers and sisters in Yeshua, tortured and killed all around the world for their faith. Especially in countries like Nigeria, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia, Pakistan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, China, North Korea. We are our brother's keepers. And we, deep down, we know. But we set things up so we can close our eyes and not have to see or think about it. But we know. So I want to challenge you today to give of your time and your talents and your resources to help your fellow brethren right here at Chaim and abroad. This is what being a covenant community, a faith family, is all about. This is what it means to be a disciple of Yeshua. So do not avert your eyes or look away from your brother or your sister in need. Don't close your eyes. Don't forget the poor and the needy and the hurting and the helpless. Yeshua tells us, whatever you do for the least of these, my brethren, you do for me. We know, don't close your eyes, don't forget. Belshazzar knew better. He knew the day of reckoning was going to come, and now it had. And God writes three words on the wall, and uh, one overhead. Daniel tells him, Daniel 5, verse 23. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand, none of the plan words here, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many, uh, tekel parzen. By the way, it's a kind of a wordplay going on here in these words. Uh, these three words have, uh, have a double, even a triple meaning. Each word, first of all, is a unit of measure, uh, like our pound, ounce, a half ounce, that implies that Belshazzar has been measured and evaluated and found wanting. He doesn't measure up. Each of these words, mene, mene, tekel, ufarzan, relates specifically to the monetary system used during that time in Babylon. Uh, there were minas, shekels, half minas, half shekels, forms of currency. Their value, by the way, was determined by their weight. Thus, literally, the meaning of the word and the upper side of the overhead uh, is numbered, num said, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. That's what it literally says. 
And then Daniel gives Belshazzar the interpretation. Look at Daniel 5, verse 26. This is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, even weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Each word also has another level of meaning as well. Each word serves to puncture an illusion that Belshazzar clings to. It makes it possible for him to live in this, this, this spiritual denial. So on the overhead, let's look at the first word, uh, mene, numbered or reckoned. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Your, numbers, your number is up, literally. <laughs> now, the, the illusion uh, involved here is this. It's my life. My life belongs to me. I'm the king. I'm free to do what I want with my life. I'm responsible to no one. But the truth is, God says, I've numbered your days, Belshazzar. And by the way, this is not only a chronological statement, it's also a theological statement. God says to Belshazzar, it's not your life. You are where you are because I created you, I gifted you, I appointed you to do this work for me, this little time while you're here on earth. And the irony is, you thought that because you were king, you were accountable to no one. But the reality is you are accountable to me, the Lord God. Every human being who walks the face of this earth will one day stand accountable for their days before God. You see, the great illusion is, this is my life. I can do what I want with it as I please. But the truth is you've been given this one life from the God who made you and appointed you. And you will stand before him and give an account of what you did with it and the overhead. Because the sacred vessels that Belshazzar had been profaning the most were not the golden goblets. It was his life. It was his life, his soul. That was the sacred vessel he was, he was uh, uh, profaning the most. And God has numbered his days. On the overhead, there's a second word, uh, tekel, weighed. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. There's an illusion here also. The illusion is it's possible if I'm clever enough or strong enough or powerful enough to get away without anything I want to do and how much wrong it is. I can get away with wrongdoing. It's possible to get away with it. Uh, this belief that we can get away with stuff, it's deeply rooted in human nature. You know, we always think we can get away with anything, right? When I was growing up, my mom kept cookies in a cookie jar in the kitchen. It was off limits. It was verboten, uh, forbidden. We had strict rules that, that were always enforced. And then my younger brother, Bob, came along, uh, the baby of the family. And he had this habit. He would sneak into the kitchen and close his eyes because he believed at that point in his life that if he couldn't see anything, nobody else could see anything. <laughs> so we'd stumble around until he found the cookie jar, get the lid off, take out a cookie, put the lid back on, and stumble out of the kitchen the whole time with his eyes closed. The forbidden cookies. And my mother and father, who would never let me or my sister Linda get away with this or take cookies like that, they would watch, and not only would they not punish him, but they would laugh themselves silly because <laughs> they thought it was so cute when he did it. <laughs> I didn't think it was very cute because he was 17 years old. 
This is something that goes real deep in people. It's an amazing thing that even as believers, when we sin, our biggest fear is usually that someone else will find out. Uh, and that it might damage my reputation or it might cause a scandal. Uh, people might talk. People might not think so well of me. Therefore, I'll just keep it a secret and everything will be fine. And if we're honest, that's how we think. But you know, it really doesn't matter what anybody else knows. What matters is what God knows. And he knows everything. Nothing escapes his gaze. Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. Before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Belshazzar was not much more in touch with reality than my younger brother Bob was when he was little. Belshazzar closes his eyes to spiritual reality. Takes what he wants from the cookie jar and thinks he's gotten away with it. But God says to him, you've been weighed, my friend. If you think my eyes are too weak to see, if you think my, uh, my mind is too dim to know what's going on in this earth, if you think you've gotten away with, with defying my authority and oppressing the very people I've charged you to serve, you are sadly mistaken. I've seen every action. I've heard every word. I've monitored your every thought. You've been weighed in the scales of divine justice and found wanting. Friends, this is serious business. This is God. This is judgment day. On the overhead, there's a third word then, Perez, broken or divided. In verse 25, it's actually rendered upharsin. The U, the U in Aramaic it simply means and, the same as in Hebrew. Uh, and farsin is plural for Ferez or Perez, because the P and the F are the same in letter in Aramaic, same as in Hebrew. Perez means broken, divided. Your kingdom is broken, and it's given to the Medes and Persians. Now, by using different vowels in, in verse 28, Daniel pronounces it as Perez versus Paraz, thus creating a play on words because Perez also means Persians. In other words, Daniel literally tells Belshazzar that the Persians will be the very ones to take over his kingdom. And the overhead. These three words, they sum up Belshazzar's life. Numbered, weighed, broken. Your kingdom is broken, it's divided, and it's taken away from you. There's an illusion involved here too. The illusion is, my life will go the way I want it to go for as long as I want it to. I might know there are some things in my life or in my character that need fixing, but there'll be plenty of time to get around to all that when I'm good and ready. But God says to Belshazzar what he says to another rich guy in scriptures over in Luke 12, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get all these things you've prepared for yourself? In the same way, God says to Belshazzar, you fool, this is your last night. The threads cut tonight. Your life will be demanded of you. Your kingdom will be broken. Now, who's going to get all your stuff? You see, all you're guaranteed is this one moment. You have just this one life to do as God, what God has called you to do. And you have no idea how many more days you're going to have. You have just this one life to do what Nebuchadnezzar finally did, to humble himself, to repent, 
to ask forgiveness for your sin, to commit your life to Yeshua. Daniel says to Belshazzar, King, this is your last night on this earth. Your whole life has been numbered up to this point, and this is the end. Daniel delivers these words, and then he's silent. And now we wait. We wait for Belshazzar to respond. We wait for him to do what Nebuchadnezzar did, to to raise his eyes to heaven, to humble himself, to submit to God. We wait for him to do what the prodigal son did, to fall on his knees, to come to his senses, to return to his father in humble submission. We wait for him to do what the thief on the cross did, to confess his sin, to pray to the Lord, to realize how desperate he is and ask for forgiveness, to fall on his knees and repent and beg for mercy. But instead, there's only silence in the room. And then finally, we read this in Daniel 5, verse 29. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel's clothed in purple, gold chains put around his neck. He's proclaimed third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over his kingdom at the age of 62. Belshazzar dies alienated from God. And in the scriptures, his life stands in sharp contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's. And as a severe warning to anyone who refuses to humble themselves before the Lord. That's his end. So in light of all this, I'd like to ask you to think about your final night, which one day will come for you and for me, as it did for Belshazzar. Without Yeshua abiding in our hearts, truly in our hearts, where we love him and we serve him, as evidenced by what what Paul calls the obedience of faith, without Yeshua, none of us measure up to God's standards. Every one of us is weighed in the scales and found wanting. So today is the day for you to repent, to truly surrender to the Lord. You can do it today. You can do it right now. Ask yourself, how am I doing right now with my walk with Yeshua? Is there any handwriting on the wall for me today? If I were to find my days numbered and then coming to an end, do I have any unfinished business with the Lord or with my fellow man? Are all my accounts cleared? Is there anything that I need to take care of with the Lord or to take care of with my spouse or with my parents or with my children or siblings or friends or neighbors or fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord? One guy, named, a guy named Max Dupree, tells of his dad who lived to be almost 100 years old. When he was 98, he fell and broke his leg and had to have surgery in the hospital. A couple of days later, the nurse calls up Max. Your dad is sitting in this chair and refuses to go to bed. He's exhausted, but he won't leave the chair. So Max goes to see his dad. He's still in the chair. How are you doing, dad? I'm tired. How long have you been in that chair? Several hours. The nurse tells me, you won't go to bed. That's right. Why? Because the minute I get in bed, I'm going to die. So, uh, well, there's no hurry then, is there, Dad? That's right. (laughs) So they talk a while. Max tries again. Now, what do you think, Dad? You want to go to bed? No. If I go to bed, I'll die. Four times they have this conversation. Finally, Max says to him, Dad, you've told me for years you're ready to die. Sure, his dad said, but not today. 
I'm ready, but not today. <laughs> How about you? Do you have any unfinished business? If it should turn out that this day would be numbered as your last, and one of them will be, is there something you know that you ought to take care of? Someone you need to forgive. Someone you need to ask forgiveness from. Don't delay. Do it today. Maybe you need to change the patterns of your parenting, or the way you relate to people, or how you treat your spouse, or you young people, how you honor and respect and obey your parents. Maybe you need to renounce habitual sin in your life, or flee from sinful habits. Start renouncing. Start fleeing. Some of you just warm a pew here, and the Lord is asking you to serve and to use your gifts and your talents to serve others. Some of you perhaps have never really surrendered your life, your whole life to Yeshua with nothing held back. God is calling you to lay down your life and to pick up your cross and to follow Yeshua, the Messiah. All of us ask the Lord to show you what he would have you do. This is your one and only life. Submit it to the Lord with full and complete devotion, with absolute surrender. And finally, how are you as a believer supposed to relate to our secular, pluralistic society that believes in many gods, just like Belshazzar, gods of gold and silver and bronze, wood, iron, and stone? Although those gods go by different names today, names like autonomy and independence, authenticity and individualism, control, self, probably the biggest god, pleasure, materialism, power, ideology, uh, the state is my savior. Well, Yeshua, he actually reinterprets this passage in Daniel 5 in a complete and perfect way and gives us the answer. In Luke 10, Yeshua sends out his disciples and says, preach the kingdom, heal the sick, feed the hungry, cast out demons. And they come back and they're amazed that through Yeshua's life, through Yeshua's power, lives are changed. The hungry are being fed. People are being freed from demonic oppression and possession. The sick are being healed. And right after that, in Luke 11, Yeshua casts out a demon, and he says this in Luke 11, verse 20. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This commentator, Earl Ellis, in his commentary on Luke, he writes this about the passage, and we'll put it on the overhead. He writes, The lordship of Satan and death yields to the inbreaking powers of the messianic age. Yet, just as King Belshazzar and his guests continue to feast, unaware that his kingdom has fallen and that his doom has been sealed, so the present age is unaware that Satan's reign is broken. It cannot read what has been written. For Luke tells us the mission of Yeshua's followers to make the kingdom visible through feeding the hungry, through changed lives, through preaching of salvation through Yeshua, is now the new handwriting on the wall. It's only a token. It's only a minute foretaste of the universal revelation of the kingdom and the glorious return of Messiah. But we believers must explain the handwriting on the wall that the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the only place where Yeshua ever uses the term the finger of God. The only place this term is ever used in the whole New Testament. And it's a reference back to the three places where it's used in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
And each of those three places, it's used as a symbol for the power and the sovereignty and the direct intervention of God. It's used first in the ten plagues. The Egyptians, magicians, refer to the third plague, the plague of gnats, uh, as being done by the finger of God. The second place is the Ten Commandments themselves, inscribed by the finger of God. And the third and final place is right here in Daniel 5, with the handwriting on the wall by the fingers of a human hand, also by the hand of God. And Yeshua's reference here in Luke 11 is clearly alluding back to Daniel 5, where I believe he himself wrote on the wall of Belshazzar's palace. And here's what Yeshua is saying in Luke 11. The handwriting's on the wall, but the writing now is my people, my followers. I've created a community in which people's lives are being changed. And they're loving each other, and they're loving their neighbor, and they're transforming lives through my word. And that's how I want the world to see that its earthly kingdom is coming down. Its kingdom, based on self-glorification and coercion, is coming down. It's a message of hope. So let me close by asking you, are you, as a Yeshua follower, are you legible? Can people read you and see the kingdom? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you're an epistle of Messiah, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. When people see you, are you do they see anything different from the world? And if you're legible, are you really different enough that your life is a sign of the coming kingdom? Are you freely and joyfully serving others? Is your life different enough so the world can see the handwriting on the wall that, that its kingdom is coming down? You can be different from the world because our king is different from the world's king. Our king gave up his glory. He emptied himself of his glory. On the cross, he became forsaken. His father turned his back on him and cast him into outer darkness for your sake and mine. Yeshua gave up his glory, unlike Belshazzar and unlike, unlike the kings of the world, so that you and I, by repenting and trusting in him, could have the glory of God. God now loves you in Yeshua. And as a result, the true kingdom of God is a party that will make Belshazzar's party look like nothing. Not a wild, decadent party, but the wedding feast of the Lamb. Yeshua asks, are you legible? Can the world see the coming kingdom of God because you are now his emissary? You're his living epistle. You're now the new handwriting on the wall proclaiming the good news of Messiah. Can others see that in you? And are you explain, explaining to them what that means? Sharing the gospel with them. Be that saving message to the world today, the new handwriting on the wall. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team, come on up, please. Father, thank you so much for these lessons from the life of Belshazzar. Unlike him, help us not to close our eyes to your holy standards or close our eyes to our own sin. Help us to pay attention to you, to abide in your presence, 
to keep short accounts, to have soft hearts open to your conviction and correction, to confess our sin and to turn from it and to quickly turn back to you. Help us to reconcile with anyone uh, who we've hurt or who has ought against us and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Lord Yeshua, you are the judge of the earth. We know that our days are numbered. Unlike Belshazzar, help us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Help us to realize that any day could be our last and that we must give an account before you. For nothing is hidden from your sight. Everything's open and laid bare before you, whom, to whom we must give an account. We know one day our lives will be weighed on your divine scales of justice. We confess our life is not our own. We belong to you, Lord Yeshua. Our desire is to do your will, not ours. We acknowledge the only way that we'll ever be weighed uh, and, 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 and not found wanting is if we're in you, Yeshua because you took the punishment of divine justice for us. So Lord, help us to be legible to others, for people to, to, be, able to, for people to be able to read my life as a living epistle, where I become an ambassador and an emissary for your kingdom. Use me, Lord, to help fulfill your great commission. For I pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.